0: Rabbi Daniel Glatstein is Rav of Kehilas Teferis Mordechai in Cedarhurst, New York, and one of the Jewish world's most popular speakers and respected Torah teachers. He's a published author of several series of Sfarim and numerous volumes of English Torah books published by Art Scroll. But what Rabbi Glatstein is probably most known for is his more than 10,000 recorded classes that have garnered literally millions of views on TorahAnyTime.com and numerous other platforms. Today, Rabbi Glatstein Stein and I talk about his goals for Adrasha and how you can measure your success as a speaker and disseminator of Torah messages.
1: People speak to you about about issues that bother them. That means uh, they look at you as somebody who, who gets them and gets the Torah.
0: We discuss which kinds of stories are most effective and the kinds of stories that fall flat. If
1: the story had to happen because it's only impressive because it's some kind of miraculous tale and if it didn't happen it's meaningless then then it's meaningless.
0: And Mike Gladstein also shares with us some of his pet peeves, like when speakers and teachers of Torah demonstrate a lack of regard for their audience by failing to put in the proper amount of preparation before their talk.
1: It says in the Svarim HaKadoshim. What? Svarim HaKadoshim? You didn't bother checking where? Which Svarim HaKadoshim? You mean you saw it in Mishpacha magazine an hour ago? Those are your Svarim HaKadoshim? There are plenty of golden nuggets and pearls of public
0: speaking wisdom contained in today's episode
1: is something that you're excited about, uh, it's likely someone else will be excited about it as well.
0: It's so clear to me that Rabbi Gladstein takes the role and responsibility of speaking and teaching Torah very, very seriously. How
1: fortunate to be in a capacity to teach Torah, to share Torah with Khalil So It's really a great uh, privilege.
0: I'm grateful for the time he took out of his busy schedule to talk with me, and I learned so much from our conversation, and I'm sure you will too so without further ado here's my conversation with rabbi daniel gladstein you wear two hats but you're a <laughs> rab and you give uh, tons and tons of shurim. so right. you're delivering drushas on a weekly basis and you're also giving lots of shurim. what is the primary difference in the way that you approach a drusha versus the shurim that you're giving
1: when i started in the rabbanos, i think i would have said that a drusha is more formal uh, for a drusha Every word is measured, every word is prepared, even rehearsed perhaps, time allowing, and depending on the occasion, Uh, there's a certain formality to it, it's condensed, a drasha is let's say a Shabbos morning drasha would be 15 minutes, or a Shabbos Haggadah, Shabbos Shuvah, 45 minutes to an hour, and a shir is a bit more extemporaneous, in the sense that I still give out Ah, uh, source sheets from my shirim. So there's a, there's always a certain formality to it. But maybe I myself am a little bit more natural. It's less prepared in terms of exactly how I'm going to present something. But I would say the essential principles of proper communication and proper presentation of Torah are similar.
0: And and what are the goals for your dress? You put you're putting a lot of effort into it. Uh, obviously, with, with uh, measuring your words, rehearsing, what's the goal for you?
1: Okay, so it really depended on, or and it depends on, the particular Rabbanas that you have. It depends on who your audience is. It depends on who your kihila is. So, uh, in my starting job, we'll call it, where I started in Rabbanas, which was more of a classic pulpit-style synagogue, where people did not necessarily have um, yeshiva background, uh, I would say the goal of the drasha was to convey fundamental values of Torah, fundamental ideals of Shemir HaMitzvot. Um, It could have been about the importance of keeping Shabbos. It could be about the importance of uh, regular Torah study, the importance of... Uh, tzniyos, the importance of tfila, the importance of bein so there I may be presenting very elementary type of ideas for somebody who has a yeshiva education, um, but for, for those who perhaps do not have the privilege of that, you want to present it in a impactful way, in a compelling way. I have never shied away from challenging my audience or speaking about things that may be would make someone feel somewhat uncomfortable because, you know, I don't necessarily do that, but I think with the right intention and the right relationship, then uh, that's the responsibility of a teacher of Torah to uh, share with the Jewish people their ancestral heritage. Then you could have, uh, let's say, a kihila of people who do have a yeshiva education, and because of, let's say, the the influence of society or or um, community sort of may get caught up in a different type of lifestyle. So they're also you you wanna you wanna present ideal ideas that that will re-anchor them in, in the in the values that perhaps they grew up with. I, so so in a nutshell, I think the main objectives of a drasha are a to educate be to inspire. I think I think that pretty much sums it up. I don't I don't think we have to go beyond that. You yeah. want to inspire people, you want to educate people. Um you're not an entertainer. The job of the rabbi is not to entertain the people. Entertainment may be a tool or a method with which you are able to inspire and educate, but that's not the role. Uh that's that's not the objective. Yes, if you get them to laugh or you get them to cry, then you have a better shot at opening up their heart and educating them and inspiring them in a meaningful way. But I wouldn't say the mark of a successful drasha is did they laugh or did they cry. The mark of, an, of a successful drasha in my opinion is more than just inspire and educate. Could they Could they say it over? Could they go home and tell their wife, you know, the rabbi said today, in a nutshell, in two, in two minutes, this is what the rabbi said today. Because there are many speakers, they could be captivating, they could be engaging, they could be entertaining, And that five minutes later, you say, that was great. But you have absolutely no idea what in the world they were, what they said. Because in fact, they actually didn't say anything, you know? So I think the greatest compliment more than, you know, I was inspired or I was moved to tears is I went home and I said it over because if they said it over, that means it was meaningful to them and you effectively communicated it in a way where they not only heard not only understood, but they themselves could say it over. I think that's the highest uh, uh, goal to strive for. Yeah,
0: that that, <laughs> yeah. that kind of leads into one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about is: What are some of the ways that uh, a speaker, uh, uh, someone who's a, a darshan or or teaching Torah publicly,
1: can measure success? You know, there are many ways to measure success, and I think it, it sometimes is very difficult. It becomes challenging to rabbanim or rabeim. You know, sometimes if someone is in the world of Kirov, so then they could sort of say, well, you know, I took someone who was not observant, and now, now they're Shomer Shabbos, or didn't keep this mitzvah, now they keep the, uh, this mitzvah. But in sort of classic Rabbanos, sometimes it's a little bit, uh, a person may feel disappointed, like what what exactly am I doing? or what, what am I supposed to do? I think a measure of whether you're being successful in Harbasas Sestayrah is, do people tell you, you know, I. Rabbi, I really appreciate what you said. I said it over to my friend. I shared it with somebody. I think another m- measure of success in terms of are you make are you connecting with the people who you're teaching is if people come to speak with you about about issues that bother them because that means that you 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 connected with them on a personal level. You know that that means that what you're teaching them resonates with them deeply. And when they go home at night and they say to themselves, you know, this is really bothering me. Who would I feel comfortable speaking to about it? Somebody who maybe understands me and understands Torah, if they come to you, so that that's a sign that, you, you know, you're doing your job in a profound way. If people, people start opening up to you. Yeah. Again, that's not the only me- uh, measure of success. I'll tell you the truth. Very often, I mean, throughout my rabbinic career, very often, people from other shuls will come to me with their issues, and I don't think in any way that reflects negatively of uh, the rav where they daven. Maybe it's sometimes it's very difficult to you know look the rabbi in the you know the rabbi that you you daven in his shul, and you know he's the one who people are calling about shaduchim for your children. You know you don't necessarily feel comfortable opening up. Sometimes it's easier to open up to another rabbi or a different rabbi but i think i think uh if people speak to you about about issues that bother them that means uh they look at you as somebody who who gets them and gets the tyra so
0: would you say potentially that that could
1: be a goal of of adrasha to to
0: build trust to connect with with the keelah in front of you even if they some weeks may not remember everything you say; may not be able to repeat it over. But if you can, you can use that opportunity to connect with them and 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 to to build trust as a
1: leader. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a a point of note. I would agree with that. If 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 you if you have a uh, effective way of sharing a message with the seabor through which you feel you could build uh, that type of connection, yeah, that would be a a very noble achievement. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. When you talk about success, one of the measures of success was to be able to, uh, someone could repeat it over, to give it over. Yeah. So what are the kind of things that, what what kind of ways do you structure a, a presentation in orders so that people should be able to give it over?
1: You know, there's a, there's a famous netziv that Yitzchak and Rivka had a very unusual type of relationship where they both, you know, Yitzchak seemed to favor Esav and Rivka favored Yaakov of Vinu. And we don't find they ever had this like heart-to-heart discussion, you know, where Rivka says, hey, you know, Yitzchak, I mean, h- how do you go for this kid? This kid is a murderer. Or Yitzchak asks Rivka, you know, why don't you appreciate, we we don't find they ever really talked it out. And and is like going behind his back, trying, t- and then Tziv basically says that Rivka meets Yitzchak for the first time. She's a young girl, and Yitzchak is coming back from Mincha, he's, he's already uh, 40 years old. And her first encounter with him is this very awe-inspiring tzaddik coming back from prayer, and she's a little girl, and she literally faints and falls off her camel. And, uh, you know, you never have a second chance to make a first impression. So her first impression of him was this imposing tzaddik, and she never got over it. So it's the same thing with a drasha. It's very important to start off a drasha in a, in a gripping way. And even if that means leaving till the end of the Drasha, this week's Kiddish is sponsored by, you know, Mrs. uh Sally Weinstein in honor of her great niece's graduation from you know elementary school. We thank her. Well, you know, she may she may not be that happy if you leave her till the end. But on the other hand, you've already 90% of the Kihila is already in deep slumber. So it's important to start off a drasha properly. You want it to be gripping. Um, I, I always like to say, the if you want to destroy a drasha, you start off. It says in this week's parsha. Come on, that's how you start off a drasha, Rabbi. You had the whole week to to come up with a way to grab my attention, and you're going with it says in this week's parsha. So um, I think it's important to you know to get off to a fast start. Like, you know, some teams, uh, if they win the coin toss, they're going to take the ball first because, you know, it's all, it's all about momentum. So you, you want to start off uh, in a gripping way, um, like, I can't believe it. Like, huh? Where, where's he going with this? What? what why, why did he start that way? Um, even a simple narrative in the Chumash, you know, you could say, in this week's parasha, the Jewish people leave Mitzrayim. They were encamped at, uh, opposite Baal Safoyn, the Egyptians were, or, or you could start, did you hear what happened? Did, there was this uh, terrible situation. It seemed hopeless, you know. And with all your descriptions, they don't know until, uh, you know, a few sentences in. You're just describing the Jewish people with their backs up against the wall and the mitzvah are coming and the, the seas on the other side. So, uh, you know, I would have to do a better job on that. But something like that is, 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 uh, preferable to uh just like a regular canned type of beginning so you want you want to start in a gripping way a question always elicits you know gets the juices flowing especially more of an intellectual type of crowd you know they're they're especially if you if you present the question in a compelling way you know in a way that should that will bother them so now now they want to hear what do you have to say what's the answer to this question maybe in one of the other sessions we discussed stories. I think it depends on your crowd. What I've been hearing as of late is that um, people don't always want to hear stories. They don't. They don't want to necessarily. They're not looking for fluff. They want content. They want to be educated. You know, a, a story that people are sort of scratching the head. Really, that 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 happened. You know, I know when I hear a story. So Rev Miller would say, you know, ninety percent of gadolim stories never happened. So, and I add, Rev Miller also never even said that. You know, so a story is good if it didn't have to happen. What I mean by that is if the story is just bringing out a point and it's not relevant whether it happened or not, it's just an illustration, then great. If the story had to happen because it's only impressive because it's some kind of miraculous tale, and if it didn't happen, it's meaningless, then, then it's meaningless because, you know, then you have to actually have to believe that it happened. You know, personal stories are good. I'll give you an example. <laughs> this this past Shabbos, it was Parshas B'ay. I'm no, I'm only telling you that not to start my drusha that way. Just you know, trying to yeah. remember what is this traffic and weather on the eights? atem <laughs> What is this? A weather report? You w- take note of the fact that you're leaving the land of Egypt in the spring. Well, why are we getting a weather and yeah? And what were the traffic conditions when the, when we were leaving the What's the significance uh, of that piece of information? So, a similar uh, phenomenon we find that when Yosef HaTzadik was going down to Mitzrayim, so typically the Ishmaelim don't carry good smelling items, and uh, those Yishma'ilem were carrying sorry, the light, and it smelled good, and Rashi points out uh, the reward for tzaddikim that Hashem made sure that, uh, that it smelled good. So here, I think this is a good technique. See, imagine for a moment those hostages that were being carried around October 7th. We all we all ha- remember vividly the picture of those hostages being carried away in cars and motorcycles. Do you think it, w- it would matter to them if their hijackers had a good cologne on or whether they didn't smell good? It was irrelevant. Their lives are coming crashing down. So that's a way of taking a simple narrative in the Chumash that maybe they've heard a million times and, th- and they're not doesn't elicit any interest, and you're sort of using a vivid image that's really in their mind's eye right now and bringing it to life. The point is, and then from, from Reb Chaim Shulevitz, that it wasn't the smell per se. Yosef HaTzadik, his world is coming crashing down. He's in jeopardy of thinking maybe God is abandoning him, maybe Hashem is forsaking him, and the good smell put into a context that Hashem is not forsaking him, Hashem is leading him. Hashem is taking him on the journey. The Rav has a plan for him. So the smell puts into context. So I happened to hear this past week an interview with a soldier who he was describing entering Gaza and smelling the explosion and burning flesh and feeling frightened. And then their tank, all of a sudden, he's enveloped in this otherworldly citrus smell. And they realized that their tank was running over an an orchard of lemons, and they were it was crushing hundreds of lemons, and it produced this citrus smell, and it gave them chizuk like Yosef Hatsadik going down to Mitzrayim, and that the Rebbeinu was with them. So that's like that's like a home run type of uh, metaphor because it's current, it's what's on people's mind, and it really does bring to life in a very meaningful way what Yosef was going through. And I think it's a very powerful message to people that if you're going through something difficult in life, keep your eyes open sometimes to the small things. It's not that it's gonna make things better, but it will put into context that Hashem is with you. So I was I was happy with that, Josha. You know, and I'm and my biggest critics. You know, sometimes uh, you don't ha- the material doesn't come uh, as you would like it. But you know, that was a good example. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful.
0: So let me ask you about some of your influences for speaking, uh, who, who you learned from, were you self taught? Are there people I, I know your grandfather was a rough. So, yeah. so tell me about where,
1: where you began your speaking career. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's interesting. Um, by nature. I'm very shy. Actually, when I when I was younger, I was uh, shy. And very nervous before I would speak publicly and it took time to get over that and took time to be comfortable. And I don't think you should ever be completely comfortable. <laughs> I think it's dangerous to be completely comfortable. I think it's healthy to have some you know, some healthy uh, fear of the public because then you'll prepare more and can never let your guard down completely. But in terms of uh, influence, you mentioned my grandfather was a Rav. And I don't think I ever had the privilege to hear my grandfather in his heyday, although my father says that uh, he never heard anyone as uh, powerful and dynamic as my grandfather. Definitely my my own father was uh, a very big influence in terms of speaking style. My father is not a practicing rabbi. He's a trial attorney, but he's a world-class speaker. And and he was a volunteer for Aisha Torah Discovery uh, for many years that he... Uh, gave the Discovery Seminars Mm -hmm. on college campuses across the country. So that was a very dynamic, passionate, dramatic type of lecture, a type of presentation that really changed people's lives forever. I mean, they had statistics on the Discovery Program that, you know, uh, 90% of people who heard the Discovery Program who would have considered marrying out of the faith would no longer do so. so. It was a very, very powerful type of presentation, so I would say that was a major influence in terms of speaking style, ability, and sort of the image of what a powerful presentation could do to people, the transformative power that a talk could have. You know, somebody who grew up maybe in a shul, hearing the rabbi get up. you know, with fumbling with a bunch of svarim, uh, the Ramban says uh, that, uh, that the, the reason why they uh, Shimon and Levi killed Dina is because nobody protested, but there, there's a morale And then a few minutes later, you know, you don't really ever think. And you actually change people's lives with Adrasha. But when you see presentations like that, you realize that when people uh, give you your attention and, and you respect their time and you do the proper pre- uh, preparation and... You deliver in in an effective manner. You you have uh, you could change lives. Um, in terms of rabbanim, I would say I have a sort of a gamut of uh, rabbanim who who I've admired or tried to uh, learn from their styles. Although their styles may be uh, very different. When I was a Bachar, I used to go to Rabbi Victor Miller. Who was also a very powerful orator. Is, these were the Thursday night shiurim. So. The Thursday night shir, I heard more on tape, but I would go to his shul on Shabbos, and he gave a an inyakov shir before mincha, similar to the Thursday night shir. So it was it wasn't a formal pulpit but drasha, but it was I would call it a very formal shir, a, a transformative type of shir. And Rev. Miller said, you know, said it as it is. He did not shy away. Uh, there was, no, I, there was no concept of something being politically correct or Rav Miller, you know, hit the nail on the head. Later on, I uh, started listening to tapes some uh, Rabbi Isaac Bernstein, who was a rabbi in England and I think originally from Ireland. And he was a, a very eloquent, dynamic speaker, eminent and powerful uh, darshan. I think I must have picked up a thing or two from him. I'll tell you another thing, and this this is something I think I learned from Rav Isaac Bernstein. When you're giving a shir, transitions are key. You don't always want to say, it says in the maral, it says in the marsha, it says in the sasames, it says, I would like to draw your attention to the word. So that's just, he had these really creative or nifty ways of segueing from one source to another or, that, uh, that's just one example that comes to mind. You know, I would like to draw your attention to the words of, uh, but that just by way of example, that's just uh, an effective transition from, let's say, one one little shtick or one little piece to another. Uh, there must be a, a number of those types of techniques that I picked up from him, uh, but that's one that comes to mind right now. For a number of years, I used to daven by Rav Noe Chaizak ne- ne- um also a very dynamic Erudite uh, Talmud Chacham, and he also was a great orator. Whenever he would mention uh, a Rishain or an Achrain, he had an amazing way of speaking about uh, the person's biography, his history, where he lived, the Svarim he wrote, maybe a controversy he was involved in. He would bring the he would bring the people to life. So the, this is not just the ink that's on the page. Of the Sefer Chasam sefer he would bring the Chasam Sofer to life. So now his words came to life. So that that was a technique, something that I learned from uh, the way Rabbi Obam would would present, and uh, people people enjoy that very much. People appreciate that very much because everyone's always hearing the Chasam Sofer, of Kiv Eger, the Noid Bihuda, uh, the Pnei Yeshua, and you'd be surprised, even Rashi and Tosfos. But nobody knows anything about them, even Rashi, even people who are yeshiva educated. Very little that people know about Rashi. Did you know that Rashi wrote many editions of his commentary on both on Chumash and on Gemara? Well, which edition do we have? Is everything that Rashi says from the same edition? So th- these—that's uh, just the basic thing. And you sort of scratch it. Hey, how, how come I never thought of that? Or who exactly was Rabbi Tam? Rabbi Tam was an actual person. He was he was a human being, and. If you study uh, a number of comments of Rabbeinu Tam, you'll see common threads how Rabin Tam would look at things. So it would, it literally uh, brought these individuals to life. Now, one thing that uh, Rav Obam did, which uh, elicited a, a curiosity and an interest on my part, and I was able to uh, uh, take it um, for myself, explore it further, is Rav Obam uh, used to take his kehila, or even personally, and go to the cities where these gedolim lived and thrived be it uh, in germany in worms in mainz in in altona hamburg in frankfurt or in, or cities in france or in the ukraine and that further brought these individuals to life because you know when you walk the streets and you visit where they're buried and you learn about them so then there's no comparison between when someone else talks about these individuals or when somebody who actually studied and visited and researched their lives and history speak about them. So that elicited in me a, a great curiosity. And over the last couple of years, I, I've had a number of opportunities of uh, visiting these places myself on trips. And I think that really expanded my repertoire and and um, my own ability to to bring the ideals and and teachings of these Gudayam to life. Yeah. I remember hearing a story about how you visited uh
0: France uh, w- to see where Rashi lived and how it, it really broadened your appreciation for Rashi and, and months leading up to it and, and uh the climax of, of going
1: there. Absolutely. And uh, even today I was um there's a lot there's a lush shown in the Shetama says he refers to Rashi as Avihen Viraban Shal Israel, the father and the Rebbe of the Jewish people. But had I not spent uh time learning about Rashi, then I just would have read those words even though I knew they were true. But now, learning and, and studying about Rashi, I feel in a deeper way that Rashi is, Rashi is our father, Rashi is our, our Rebbe. Yeah. I want to know some of your biggest pet
0: peeves when it comes to other <laughs> speakers. Uh, when you when you see, you know, uh, things that drive you crazy, if you see speakers and, and public okay, teachers. Okay, you ready?
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. It says in the Svaram HaKadoshim, what? Svaram Hakadoshim? You didn't bother checking where? Which Svaram Hakadoshim? You mean you saw the Mishpacha magazine an hour ago? Those are your Svaram Hakadoshim? No. You heard somebody else say it in the Shir, you didn't look it up. Tell me where it is. Otherwise, I, no. I don't, I don't like that. I don't accept that expression. Svaram Hakadoshim. <laughs> okay. Next. Regarding this issue, some say that, and others say, what are you? Really? really? Meaning you have absolutely no idea. You did not value the tzibur. You think we're a bunch of elementary school kids. What do you mean some and others? Who are they? Who are the some and who are the others? Um, okay, next. The story goes about... It was either the Gvil or the Chassam Soifer. No, it was probably not about either of them. If you don't know who it was... Again, the, these type of things where where things are quoted based on fuzzy, hazy types of memories from things that may never have happened, I reflect on the level of preparation and respect that the speaker has for the material and for the Tzibor. Okay, two two more quick questions if you have time, and they
0: are... Uh, someone comes to you and says, uh, "I also want to teach Torah publicly. I want to uh, to lecture. Uh, I want to convey Torah, Torah messages. Uh, what are the minimum skills such a person uh, should possess?"
1: First of all, I encourage every single Jew. Every Jew is required, not just to learn Torah, to teach Torah. It's a commandment in the Torah. It's it's a it's a basic command. Every Jew's connection to Torah has to be learning and teaching. That being said, not everyone is ready for the major leagues. So what are the basic skills? Let, let's say, for example, somebody's teaching uh, Mishnah Barah. Let's, let's pick an example. Somebody says, I want to give a Mishnah Bura a share. Okay, so we, let's determine. A, do you know how to read the words? Do you know how to read the words? Could you read Hebrew? <laughs> okay, could you read Hebrew? Could you translate the words? Do you understand the halachic process? Do you understand who the Machaber is? Who the Ramah is? Who the Magan Avram is? Who the Taz is? Who the Gra is? Who the Mishnaburah is? Otherwise, you can't give a brochure. You're going to read the Dershu notes. The Dershu notes are, are going to say, even though the Chafetz Chaim says it's Asr, but it says in this journal that came out yesterday, That Rabbi so and so said it's okay. Do you understand? There's a difference between the Chafetz Chaim, who wrote a Mishnah Bura and a Torah journal that came out that's just quoted in the Dershu notes. So you have to have a fundamental understanding of the halachic process, and you could be very smart, but if you didn't really go to a yeshiva and spend time absorbing. The hierarchy and the the value system in halacha. Then you're not yet ready to to give a shear on that topic. Maybe you could give a shear on chumash. But even if even to give a shear on chumash, if you're if you're gonna read a chumash and a Rashi and then say, you know, I also I saw in the parsha on the bima and who wrote the parsha sheet? Oh, uh, my friend's son, right? And and. You know, I think there has to be a certain basic understanding of the hierarchy and the process of, of the subject matter that you're teaching. So, on the one hand, you know, you want to give everyone that opportunity, you know. But it's not always amateur hour, you know, as I say, it's not always amateur hour. The same way, well, who Kadavan for the Amad? Give the guy a chance, you know, give the kid a chance we have to we have to evaluate, we have to balance and you know, give the guy a chance but at, at whose expense and what type of situation so i think um a a loving and caring rough will try to give a person uh the right coaching maybe um but but it has to be balanced in other words you want to give people a chance but you also don't want to do a disservice to the audience. Okay, and and the
0: last question that I have is you teach so much, so many different subjects, and some of them are going to be more interesting, directly relevant to the people that you're teaching, and some of them are going to be very dry, very technical, uh, very esoteric. Um, How do you, do you just... A barrel through those? Do you try to find some angle wh- with which to engage the audience, uh, your listeners in those circumstances? Uh, you know what, what? What is your approach?
1: A, I think you'd be surprised at what has an impact on people. You know, so I have a lot of stuff online and I meet people as they say, oh Rabbi Gladstone, I listen to your shir. Realize, I'm thinking, oh what What do you listen to? Like my Wednesday night Parsha shirt? And they say, "No, no, I, I listen to I listen to your Mishnuburushir, share. I'm just reading Mishnubura. You know, like that's not my big share. So, like Shlach Lach Macha Pnei Amayim. You never know what what influences someone or impacts on someone. And a general rule that's uh, is something that you're excited about. Uh, it's likely someone else will be excited about it as well. So, I think it's very much up to the teacher. If this is a, a subject that excites the the Rebbe." Then you have a fighting shot that maybe the talmidim will be excited. If you're not excited about it, then in all likelihood, neither will your, uh, neither will the audience. I, I'm very grateful to Rebbeinu to be in this situation. I think uh, I, I once had a rebbe who was a Rosh Hashiva, and we were we were making a siyam on a We were in a restaurant actually. Somebody asked him, you know, what do you do? He said, I'm a I'm a I'm a Malamid. you know, which you wouldn't hear to you wouldn't expect to hear from a Rosh Hashiva that he's a Malamed. But really, that's the most uh, noble occupation. That's the occupation of Hashem. Hashem is Malamed Taira Laama Yisrael. So, you know, sometimes you have to remind yourself that, uh, how fortunate, you know, for those who have the zuchus to be in a capacity to teach Taira, to share Taira with Kalal Yisrael, it's really really a great privilege. And uh, Hashem should give all the aspiring and current Rabbanim uh, the wherewithal and and the chizuk to be able to carry out their job on Me'ev Esam Shana. Amen. You can connect with Rabbi
0: Galatstein at RabbiDG.com where you can subscribe to his newsletter and join his WhatsApp groups for his classes. You've been listening to The Magid Method and I'm Daniel Steinberg. There's a secret the great public speakers know. Did you know there's a method for cutting straight through to an audience's heart, grabbing their attention and holding it, and making a memorable impact with your presentation? The best speakers in the world utilize it, and now you can too, every time you get up to speak. Download your free MAGID Method of Public Speaking template at M a g g i d M e t h o d M-A-G-G-I-D-M-E-T-H-O-D.com. The Magid Method will teach you how to find your authentic voice, craft meaningful presentations, manage people's attention, and build unbreakable bonds with your audience. Go to MagidMethod.com and download your free copy now.